Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. We are back, but this time we are going to be seasonal instead of punching out podcasts every two weeks. So every two weeks for the next 16 weeks, I'll be pushing out an episode, so eight episodes in all jiu-jitsu guys, surfers, people in the military with lots of really interesting stories and perspectives. So I hope you're going to enjoy it. This week's podcast is with a guy who is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt and his own gym down in Newquay in the United Kingdom, but was also a former professional free surfer and big wave surfer. So please enjoy my conversation with Nick Tisco. Nick Tesco, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Round two, because we <laughs> messed the first one up. Well, I did. How are you? Where are you? And are you surfing or rolling today? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, I've been enjoying the sunshine. We have no surf, nothing whatsoever for a long time and not a lot on the forecast. And I'll be rolling today at 7pm. Your brown belt's taking your class for you? It's like you're a mind reader. I know, yeah. right? <laughs> we got a great guy, a student of mine. He's a brown belt called Alex Bedesign. He's in the RAF and uh, he will be teaching a class. Got a wicked mix of stand up. Uh, he's got some lovely leg attacks and I happily hand over the class once a week to him to do teach a class and I can just sit at the back as a student and enjoy it. Um, and yeah, so we'll have, we'll have a busy class. It'll be a good night. How are you finding your academy now? It's uh, open because you were, uh, is it K2 before? We've had um, like a mixture of things over the years um, and it's going really well right now. I've been teaching in Nuki for about 10 years um, and there's a sort of long story about that. But basically just before uh, COVID, I, I opened up my own place, moved out of a gym, moved out of concept gym, opened up my own place and then COVID happened three months later, shut everything down. Then when it all opened up again, I was a little bit tentative about it, a bit nervous about whether I'd want to go it alone again. So I went back in the gym and uh, I was in there for uh, probably just a bit over a year and then decided to, no, that wasn't going to work out for me. Um, so I moved out again. And then, so that was last September and we're coming up for nearly a year and it's thriving, best it's ever been. Got a wicked little place. It's our own place. A nice sprung floor, white mats, and uh, and the club, and the mentality, and the membership, and everything is just spot on. How are you finding all that, like running it yourself? Because obviously you've you've got your full time job um, that you do day to day, but then also you're 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 running your own academy, and you've paid for all of that sort of stuff to 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 be inserted into there, you're creating your own environment and your own and your own kind of culture. I think it just comes down to experience at the end of the day. And um, I've been I've been running my own business for like 15 years anyway uh, with the surfing. I was teaching surfing, well, I taught surfing for 18 years and 15 of those I actually had my own business. Um, so I'm used, well used to sort of managing and, uh, you know, managing things the way that I want them to go. And then, as like I said, with jiu-jitsu, well, I've been teaching it for 10 years, so I kind of know the ins and outs of classes and dealing with members and, and having some structure and all that kind of thing. So to be honest, I've pretty much with the help of some very good, very good guys that are close to me, 
just really hit the ground running and haven't looked back. Um, I haven't found it. I haven't found it any real issues in doing that at all. So I'm sure there's stuff to come, but so far so good. Because you're not an actual uh, sort of like you didn't grow up in Newquay, did you? You grew up in London, is that right? I was born in London, and then I we we grew up just outside London, sort of Buckinghamshire, Berkshire border, and went to school in uh, in a town called Maidenhead, as proper suburbia. Uh, I lived near the Thames, and that was quite nice, but I just wanted to go surfing, so I left. I left there when I was 15, 16 years old, and uh, moved to Newquay on my own then, and. Um, yeah, I never looked back with that either. So just, uh, you know, my kids now have grown up here and so they're pretty happy about about those choices. Um, yeah, no, so I'm not, not Cornish, uh, but I've been here for 30 years, <laughs> nearly. How did the surfing bug grab you anyway, living in London? Because, you know, I'm very similar. I came from, came from the Midlands and it was only because, uh, you know, being in the Marines and ended up being drafted down in the southwest that I ended up moving and living here myself. So my earliest memory of wanting to surf was primary school and it was certainly not a surfing area and I really don't know why it cropped up on my radar, but I had a couple of friends at school. Um, there was a couple of them were, were Australian actually. Um, and so there was a conversation about surfing and I even still distinctly remember one of the lads saying that his mum had ridden in the pipeline. And I don't think any of us knew what pipeline was as a surf break, but I think maybe we grasped the concept that it was like getting a tube ride or whatever. And I, but I still remember thinking to myself at what, eight years old, I'm calling bullshit on that. Um, <laughs> there's no way that your mum is a surfer because surfing's way too cool for a mum, but obviously being this little kid, what the hell did I know? Um, and uh, yeah, and no, I just wanted to do it. And we used to go, we used to go to Brighton, we used to go to Bournemouth for day trips and, so I'd jump in the sea, we'd get those little polystyrene boards and I'd try that. And we'd go to the Algarve on holidays when I was a little bit older than that. And I'd buy a little bodyboard and smash the shore break. And I just still was just dreaming and looking at pictures of real surfing. It wasn't until I was like 13, 14 that I got to actually buy my own surfboard and then sort of taught myself to surf in a relatively quiet Bournemouth pier beach. There weren't really anybody surfing then around that around that area in those days which for the people who, are, who live in Bournemouth now must think that's insane um yeah and then I got to I got to Nuki on a work experience trip when I was 15 so uh and then I was like right I'm moving back here then as soon as I finish school I had something very similar so I, I got into um surfing I went on uh I went on a holiday to to Wales up in Pembrokeshire and uh my sort of like childhood I, I kind of I grew up like sailing really crappy old sort of like rotten dinghies and um, and doing a bit of windsurfing. And uh, when we went on a holiday sort of like around the around the Tembe area, saw a couple of guys in the water and I was like, you know, you you you, you see every now and again sort of like the odd bit of uh, TV on your four channels you had back then. And uh, and uh, yeah, I went to a surf shop. With, I think I bought a, a short board that was like a six six you know, um, 18 and three quarters wide, you know, the typical pencil Kelly Slater boards and, uh, and it's kind of got into the water from there. So when I was, when I was back at home, this was probably when I was about 13 or 14, I had like a Kelly Slater pencil case and 
I had like stickers everywhere and surf magazines in my bag and stuff. And being from the Midlands, like no one, no one really did, you know, was even into that. They're all into the, like the mainstream sports, like, like football and rugby and all that sort of stuff. And anyway, I, long story short, I was, um, I was talking to one lad one day and he said, uh, oh yeah, I, I, I was a professional surfer when I was a bit younger and I was sponsored by Billabong. And I was like, mate, you've lived like 10 minutes down the road from me, like since you were born, how, how are you a sponsored surfer? So yeah, I got bullshit on that too. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting when you grow up, um, you know, and we're probably similar age and grow up around that time, well away from the coast and nobody really, nobody really has much of a clue about what it is. I mean, obviously it's kind of become a bit of a household thing. Now there's so much accessibility. There's so much instruction on it at the beginner level. Um, obviously the internet's huge in, in broadcasting it into everybody's pocket, um, not even their home. Um, and, but it was a bit of a weird thing to do. And like, even if I went windsurfing around London, which we used to do, we used to go to like, you know, Docklands and go and do water sports. And then I'd be like, well, I want the coolest windsurf board that looks as much like a surfboard as possible. You know, the one with the nicest graphics. And then I'd find a shop you know, like a boating shop and we'd go check it out, you know, and see stuff. And if there was one corner where they had a wetsuit or they might have had a pop-out surfboard in it, I'd just be like looking at it and idolising it for hours. I didn't want to leave. I just wanted to touch it and see. And actually, funny enough, I got my first surf magazine from London, from Selfridges. I was there with my dad and went in their bookstore downstairs and the magazine racking out and saw this copy of Surfer. And I was like, well, I've never seen a surf mag. And there's American surf magazine. So, you know, that just like lit up my world. And I've actually, actually at the time, like over the years, I cut it up and stuck it all over my wall and all that kind of stuff. You know, like you said, you had stickers everywhere and, and all that. And I used to cut my magazines up and then I regretted it. And recently I actually got hold of a copy of that first issue um, from a surf shop down here in, in Newquay. And I've actually got it here, like right now. Um, look at that. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's Matt Archibald on the cover. And uh, I read this thing, cover to cover, back to front. I even read the barcode. It was like, <laughs> that's how much I wanted to know about surfing. There wasn't one bit I hadn't read um, so many times over. And it's wicked that I've got that now because it really does remind me of those early days. And when I look at it now, like what I did over surfing, getting myself here and the experience I've got and how some of that translated over you know, to my understanding of how to grow my jiu-jitsu club even, that just, you know, the best things just come with experience, but you don't see it happening. It just happens because you're just enjoying it so much as it happens. Um, and and it's funny because even in my day job, which is around recruitment, and I, I look at people's CVs and I see that, um, you know, that progression in their careers from the beginning to where they are now and why I might want to talk to them. And people see that from the beginning to where I am now, why they might want to come to jujitsu. And they might see where I am now when I'm surfing. And, and they might they might say, oh, well, I listened to you on that podcast. And they said, yeah, Nick, 15 years old, moved to Newquay. Now, look. Um, but the really, really cool thing is that I, I learned last night, I was at this talk, and I'll tell you more about it in a minute if, if you want. But a guy said something really interesting last night. He's a surfer, it's survived a shark attack. And he said, the, the the what happens between point a and point b is never a straight line so this guy survived a shark attack and now he's surfing 
and you know i started surfing at 15 you know or, or younger than that even um living in land like you and now we're where we are and there isn't a straight line between a and b there's loads of little challenges along the way but you know certainly for something like surfing and jiu-jitsu you can just make that an enjoyable process of course for you know overcoming a shark bite or something that's probably not an enjoyable process but you still got to keep keep going and, and work your way through the journey to get there i think it's just there's so many correlations in everything that you do in life yeah i think sometimes though like you're saying you that guy who had the shark bite uh who got bit by a shark it can take something like that to kind of spark redirection. Uh, one of the things that I, I really think about, but I guess in the way, if, if, if I'm comparing it to myself, I'm in a very lucky position where I had spent, um, you know, 22 years in the Marines. I've, I've now kind of come out of there, but I've got a pension at 40 years old. So the, there's kind of like a semi-financial stability stability there. Um, but I also believe very much so that even when I was during my career in the Marines, if there was something that I wanted to do, I would go and do it. I would change what I was doing. And I think change for people sometimes can be can be quite difficult. And sometimes it can almost like, you know, going to the extreme end of what you're saying is a guy gets bit by a shark. It can take something like that to take a complete different change of direction in life and now he's doing something that he enjoys doing and that's why i think surfing and jiu-jitsu is has a really good comparison is because you can immerse yourself into them and, and they're, they're both really addictive things even though they require like years and years and years of practice to become at them but during that journey is where all the highs and lows and things come from which also if you want to be you know, a little bit, I guess, hippie-ish about it, make you a bit a better person as you're going along as well? I definitely think those things make you a better person and the, the change is happening all the time. And it's quite funny that, that and it, I don't think it matters what you do, change is always happening. And so why people get so afraid of change, um, you know, sometimes it might happen in a big moment. Um, you know, fear of change is like on one side of it leading up to it. And then when it's happened, where you can't really fear the change, then it's there. It's happened. It's it is what it is, right? Um, obviously, you know, a nice progressive thing of just doing surfing day in day out. I guess it's a gentle change, or you know, even jujitsu. It's like a gentle change. I mean, most people probably the opposite. They want it to hurry up. <laughs> they want the change to come quicker. But um, or maybe a lot of people do. But uh, yeah, I think like what this guy uh went through with the the shark bite um he said definitely that may it's a bit he said the best thing that ever happened to him uh he said you know the, the shark attack was the best thing that ever happened to him because it just redirected his his mindset it gave him a, a, a different purpose in life he wanted to be a pro surfer um and it pretty much did end that um but partly because he realized he didn't want it anymore in the same way so and maybe couldn't have it anymore but um he does still surf he does still surf well um but he, he has given him this ability to tell a story and to impact on people's lives and to help them with their problems and i think that's something that certainly jujitsu does as well you know what we go through you know over years and years and years of 
that graft in jiu-jitsu and probably to be honest you could take that from the military as well is that you then have the ability to help people you know see perspective you know find some balance you know uh, not necessarily compare the difficulties but uh, let let them see and understand that there's always a way through with a good plan of action you um you mentioned that you uh you were a surf coach for for 20 years and uh and you ran your own school so um you know doing a bit of research and i think that's kind of how i how i started to to hear about you was uh, in fact when i was when i first started training uh, at x to bjj some of the guys came down to you and you had did you was your school down in morgan porth that's right so um the large part of yeah what i did with surf coaching was based out of a hotel in morgan porth and i had this cool little surf shack they could they called it that at first i i thought it was a bit cliche but by the end of it i mean i loved the surf shack it literally was like a a big shed in their back garden and it overlooked the beach it had this incredible view at the sunset at the end of every day um I had a little decking out the front and it was on this huge huge lawn um which we could put a mat out on and roll on overlooking the water um so yeah i used to do sort of little surf jujitsu um visits for people and the guys from exeter came i mean i knew them anyway you know for affiliation and stuff and uh but various people have come through there in the jiu-jitsu community and they've done that they've come surfing with me and then they've we we did rolling outside and i still get asked now but i'm not probably not going to roll outside with anybody because they i don't really have the perfect spot anymore and b i've got a proper i've got a proper really nice academy and that's where i like to do jiu-jitsu but um you know and i can go surfing when i go surfing and obviously i don't have that surf shack anymore but the surf the surf coaching um was a funny one that just sort of happened I never planned to be a surf coach in my life. I, I was doing other things. I was a chef. I was, you know, I, did, I tried to be a personal trainer and then it just sort of bumped into somebody one day who said, oh, you could have a job at the surf school, at, you know, at Fistral Beach. And I did. And, I, and I, I, I went and had a chat and then I got a job and, and then I got qualified and I went through that process and helped coach, do some coaching with the English team and, and various things. That Before I knew it, I would, that's what I was doing. And then when I set up the business, that was just a, luck, a bit of luck as well. And then, uh, yeah, a long time. And then sort of saw the end of it last year um, after probably it not really going any further than I might have liked it to go. And then I realised perhaps there was a, a limit on what I could achieve with it. So, uh, and possibly a bit of burnout because largely, largely I was teaching families and tourists and kids and things in the summer. And, and it's fun. And... Uh, but, you know, as you get older, it gets a bit tiring doing that. You know, when I first did it, especially with the hotel, when I had the surf school with a hotel at the beginning, I was long-haired, 20-something-year-old, cool surfer Nick. You know, I was younger than all the parents of the people who were bringing their kids. You know, everybody saw me as this young guy, like, you know, and then by the end of it, I'm older than the people who are bringing their kids for lessons. <laughs> and, uh, and And I'm feeling it in the sense of, like, you know, lugging boards up and down the hill, you know, pulling kids in and out of waves and doing the same thing, treading on weaver fish. Um, I think I was just probably done with it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was, I, I was very, very similar, but obviously I didn't have a surf school because I was in the military, but um, I, I was a, I, I did all my surf coaching stuff probably 
18 years ago. So on and off, I've, I've been a surf coach since probably, yeah, 18 years. And um, I, this, is, this is not meant to sound bad at all. I don't know how you do it or did it day in, day out. Because honestly, it used to break me doing it maybe four or five times a year if I'm running, a, if I was running a surfing package, because I get used to get asked that quite a lot. Um, because there was only a couple of us that were, you know, trained surf coaches in, in the military. We used to go down and, and do like adventure training weeks and, and things like that. Teaching the same thing over and over again. It got to a point where I was just kind of like, oh, man, it, it, <laughs> it was, don't get me wrong. Teaching somebody that um, when, when you teach them how to do something, like when you do a pop-up or you you teach them some basics about uh, about the beach, about um, the the rips and the tides and the currents and things that are like in the background of surfing. And then you give them a bit of technique and they're actually getting up during the session and then trying to get the guys that aren't as athletic maybe to try and get up or, um, you, you know, you're trying to inspire them a little bit, trying different ways to coach them into doing things. And they, and they can't do it, it just started to grate on me a little bit. And uh, I mean, you could argue that that's, that's a, a detriment to my, my instructor ability maybe. But like you say, the more, the more that you do it and the more the, the years go on, you're enthusiastic when you first start doing it. But then as time goes on, you kind of repeating it a little bit and you might get one or two people that are at that latter end of beginner and intermediate where they're learning how to trim, how to turn, where to put their, you know, where to put their arms and hands and turn the shoulders and looking to turn on the wave, you know, those people are kind of far and few between. It become, it can become quite frustrating at times. I think. Well, I think there's um, there's two parts to it as as a developing surf coach, and it sounds like you probably didn't have one bit of it. So you know, for me, when I started, I was at the British Surfing Association Surf School, and that was at Fistral Beach, so we're at a really busy surf school, uh, a busy beach that I wanted to be at. It was, you know, that was my local beach to develop my own surfing. But aside from me and, and the in-between bits that I got to, you know, put the beginner lesson down, then run out and go surf straight away. But I was around a team of people. So, you know, we had the national coaching director was my boss. Um, so, you know, what I was learning about coaching was really useful and there was structure to it. It wasn't like I got qualified and then it was just like, right, off you go then. And you might you might get lost for things like, how do I fix this? You know, so this guy's hopeless or I'm not having much success with these people. The kids keep washing away from me. How do I deal with it? You know, I was taught all of these things and, you know, I wasn't, it was a bit, I guess, a bit more like an assistant at, at first, which is good. Um, I had 10 years surfing experience already, which was good, but I had nothing about, you know, teaching somebody to surf. I had some some personal training experience that I qualified in. So I knew a bit about teaching people. And then, um, but the other side of it then is if you're doing it every day, are you doing it somewhere that you want to be? And can you, in between lessons, put your stuff down and go surf? And I had the energy at like 24 or whatever it was, to like literally would get our group back, drop everything, wash the wetsuits quickly, bang, 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 hang it all up. And I'm still in my wetsuit, grab my board, run down to low tide, 
get 20 minutes to surf in myself, get a couple of waves, you know, get my practice in, do what I want to do, come back in. I'm still wet. Next lesson's here. Boom, let's go. And the same thing at the end of the day, we clean down the surf school. And now you get your sunset surf at high tide and everyone's excited to get in. You know, I'm surrounded by people like me. Um, you know, we're at the same level and we're able to sort of push each other, loads of teamwork and camaraderie. When I got to the end, I was the boss. So I wasn't really, it wasn't, I didn't, firstly, I didn't have the same energy because I was older. Um, I was at a different beach. It was a little bit harder to just run up and down. Instead of doing two lessons a day, I'd be doing three lessons a day. So fitting in surfing around three surf lessons is like, that's a big ask. You know, when, we're, when we had the surf shack, we were on the top of a cliff. So we'd walk down the footpath, down the cliff, down the low tide. It's probably about three quarters of a mile. And that's just the walk to the water. So imagine doing that three times, carrying boards, six hours of coaching. You know, you've been on your feet from, since 9 a.m. And then at 6 p.m. you're thinking, I'm going to run back down there and go shred. <laughs> um, so it depends how you do it, you know. And if if you're suddenly like, for you, it sounds like you'll probably like do your normal thing. And then now you've got a weekend of surfing and you've got a bunch of guys from the military and you're going to teach them instead of go surfing. You know, yeah, you'll surf with them a bit, but now you're not really doing your thing. You're doing their thing. And then your weekend's over and you've got to do your other job and whatever. So I don't know. Is that would that be fair? Yeah, yeah, kind kind of. Like the we the we used to do like uh, with the Navy surf team, we used to do um like beginners weekends to get like families down and, and do that sort of thing. Um when I was up in North Devon, I used to I used to help out when I wasn't doing much, like with the with the Cord Surf Academy up there. Um, so I used to do like festivals or do the odd class here and there during the week, sort of like over lunchtime if they're if they were if they were short of people. But I get I guess kind of the point that you're making is I wasn't immersed into into that environment. I was bouncing between different environments, between you know running a gym, um, creating programs for for soldiers, working out myself, doing jujitsu, going surfing on my own, coming back teaching surfing i didn't have anyone there to kind of develop me which is kind of what you're saying is that you're in that environment where you're getting that developmental thing and 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 even if you're not being taught things when you're working like with somebody else you take little tidbits from them as well don't you so little coaching things sometimes you might have an absolutely rubbish coach but even like one thing that they say or do might make somebody do something they wouldn't have done it before and you can take that little bit away one of the greatest bits of uh, coaching and structural information i ever got was was someone said to me once go and do as many courses as you can even if it's the most rubbish course on the planet but everybody has a different way of instructing if you can take lots of little bits from lots of little people and put them together in your little portfolio and then use them that just makes you a, a better coach and a better instructor and i think that's kind of how i've developed into you know doing what i'm doing now as well i'd say I, i'd agree with that and um but maybe i hadn't really had it so consciously um but obviously i have picked up a lot of things because it's not like i could say that every day I was told how to teach, you know, nobody ever said, oh, you've got a pitch like this. There were a few tips here and there, 
but over really over my career I've, I have been on lots of different workshops and courses and stuff I've done my life go course and that however many times you know I did all my my surf coaching ones I've done first aid ones I've done NLP all sorts of stuff you know and um and I guess I probably picked up stuff not, not to mention obviously with jujitsu you know getting taught day in day out I mean that's you're basically on a non-stop coaching course I think for the surf the surfing my own development as a coach though I didn't have jiu-jitsu back then so I was just 100% surf and I cared about nothing else so I want to you know I was a competitive surfer the fact is I was at the beach I cared about my sponsors at the time I just cared about going surfing and to be honest while some people would say oh you stood in the water you don't get to do your thing it's like well I was very close to doing my thing so the moment I put tools down I could do my thing um, if I had been working on a building site, that would have been a bit further removed and a little bit harder to get back to doing my surfing, wouldn't it? Um, and, you know, God knows what, uh, what other jobs people do or were doing back then. But for me to be, I was immersed in surfing. Like I was salty and wet the whole time, <laughs> you know. So. so I know that you were a um, sort of like a professional free surfer kind of back in the day. Um, how have how have you seen the the changes in kind of surf culture and um, you know the the COVID period has kind of almost like made surfing explode even more than than it had done had it done previously and being in like Nuki which is kind of the inverted commas surfing mecca of the the UK I mean how how have you seen uh, seen the change in in it over the years? It's crazy how busy it is. Obviously, you know, what I did was as a job was probably part of that. So it's easy to say COVID did it. But I think COVID uh, fell into a time that was on the back of many people like me. You know, 20 odd years there had been then of really structured surf coaching environment. So when people wanted to find a way to get outdoors and come to the coast and then go and get involved and even develop things inland. Um, it was all off the back of quite a long period of really structured, developed uh, surf coaching within the industry um, and that, that sort of growth within the industry. And I'm not sure that all of it was good um, for the sport of surfing in the sense of like what people really liked about it. Like that like you and I both have mentioned things about being the, the odd one out at school, you know, wherever you grew up and whatever time it was when you were growing up. Oh, you like surfing? What's that? You know, and now, of course, a lot of people like surfing. Um, it's weird as well because for a long time, the surf industry really, it really felt like they supported and surfers through sponsorship, creating opportunities. You had to work, you had to fight for it a bit, but you knew the pathway. It was quite straightforward and there was money, not loads of money, but there were, there were opportunities that were coming from the brands. And then all of a sudden, it seemed to hit a period where they said, there's no money. You know, there's been recession, there's this, there's that. And then there was COVID. And it's like, but yeah, at the same time, there are hundreds of millions of pounds to be put in a wave pool technology. It's still the same industry. Um, it just seems like there's been a shift. The popularity of surfing created a shift where, yeah, there was a recognition that there's money around um, and money to be made, but certainly not within like the surfing that's down at the beach that's free. Um, so free to watch and free to enjoy. Um, and so pumping loads of money into having top surfers go out in their local breaks and 
you know, show off the skills and inspire people and make it onto videos. That's not the case. What the case is now is that how can we develop uh, uh, an Olympic sport or a spectator sport for all these people? That's where the money seems to be going. I'm not saying it's all bad, but I'm just saying it was a really good industry before. And it just seems strange how it's shifted now. And I'm not sure I like that side of it as much. I don't know. I mean, I know I kind of know what you're talking about. Sort of like I think you're alluding to like how the WSL um runs things with with their televised things and especially with the wave pool scenario that happened with um with Vitolo and uh, Griffin Calapinto um there. And I, I can I can see what they're trying to do. I can see the frustration behind behind professional surfers especially when you do a mid-season a mid-season cut so that your televisation of of something is shorter so people can what like watch it for longer it's like going to watch a boxing match but it takes three days to get through all the card it's just not people aren't going to tune in for that right so i can see why they've done that but the effort it takes those professionals to get up, to get to that level and then get cut halfway through where they could inevitably make it through on the second half of the tour into sort of like the top five or the top 10, if they win enough competitions, um, it, it does, it does seem quite harsh from a business perspective. It might be a smart way of doing it. I don't know. Cause I don't count their figures as it's coming through. Um, as a as a person that watches it, because I regularly do watch the competitions that come through, I like it. But like anything, you're you're using you're using nature and relying on nature. I mean, I think half of the half of the contests that have been on on the pro tour recently have been in like really rubbish conditions that you would probably watch like at the double WQS or you you know you you do like British competitions in so. It's really kind of swing around about with it a, a little bit. Um, at the end of the day, it's kind of like it, it's what you're into. And I think there's enough surfing content out there and competitions for, uh, you know, videos, YouTube videos, people doing vlogs and stuff to grip, get their teeth into that you can almost kind of like if you don't make it uh, and you've got a good personality and character, you can almost re rebrand yourself and still make some money out of it and still get sponsored by these surfing sponsors. But I think you just have to be a little bit more clever about it, I think. Yeah, I think that side, that new side of it in the modern world for free surfers, like using YouTube, they can make a lot of money. And actually the sponsors kind of come second to that thing. Um, you know, sponsors suddenly do want to be on that because they know that there's a big viewership. Um, and I think that's a great opportunity. There's been some pioneers of that, like Jamie O'Brien. Um, it's a clear front runner uh, of how much money he makes just from having a consistent show that he does. Um, but I think the other side, like when you come back to like competitive surfing and the broadcasting of it, oh, and it might take three or, or three days or a week or even more. But that's what surfing is. It's real. And if I went on a surf trip tomorrow. I choose where I want to go and I'm rolling the dice and I'm well aware of it. But I tell you one thing, I'm going in no matter what. So if I'd come to Nuki, which I did before I moved here, I came to Nuki for my holiday uh, and I wanted to go surfing. If it was flat, guess who's going surfing? Nick. You know, I don't my parents telling me, oh, but there's no surf. I don't care. 
I'm going surfing. And uh, I think that actually a, a tournament out of 10 or 12 or whatever's on the year, it's no big deal if it's not very good conditions. It's part of what makes a real surfer. Can I relate to some, can most people relate to the guy that stands up with his arms above his head in a cavern at Chopu? No. Um, can I relate to the guy that can, you know, shred a peak at lowers? Yeah. I don't do it quite the same, but I can relate to that. And a lot of people can, they could catch those waves. Uh, they can't catch the ones in Tahiti, but they could catch those. And I think having a nice mix of that is, is good. I just don't think you need it to be brought down to that attention deficit level where you where they seem to assume that we can't concentrate for a week and we won't tune back in i think the real surfers will and at the end of the day if you think back before that into like this magazine time that's where the contest results were so you don't have to wait till the magazine came out to find out what happened unless you were there but if you were there and at huntington beach you know since the beginning of time they'd have a hundred thousand people on the beach for the tournament the us open and whatever um and what a, what a fantastic time and what an amazing industry that was created and i think to turn it into formula one or tennis <clears throat> and and try to try to do that i think it's short-sighted i think it doesn't take into account the his the long and interesting history and culture of surfing and um it just it, it just appeases like a short attention span right now and maybe it you know it helps with that running of apps and things like that and fitting it into you know instagram and tiktok and stuff but surfing would carry on and like i'm sure that you know lots of people that i do that don't care about professional surfing um and they just want to get their board and go surfing and they want a quiet corner to go and find so what but i like competitive surfing uh, i like it a lot i just don't like a lot of it right now and actually and it's not even that i'm even that hung up just about what the wsl might do there are other events and not all of their events are bad, but I just mean that it's interesting how they, you know, we could fund a wave pool in Bristol, but we couldn't fund an industry to develop our surfers to be, you know, there are a couple of exceptions coming up now, but like Germany have pro surfers, you know, and they've paid for these guys to be in other places where the waves are good. Why couldn't we, you know, there was no money, but turns out there is money. Especially now as it's an Olympic sport as well. Yeah, there's a bit coming in now for that. I've got a friend that's a coach involved with the English surf team and um, his position has been enabled by that funding for sure. But let's see how, hopefully it will last a long time. So hopefully they'll re renew it as well for him. But for the, for the sake of people like that, you know. Let's redirect this a little bit. Back to jiu-jitsu. <laughs> so uh, how did you, how did you get into jiu-jitsu or even martial arts if i'm honest i always wanted to do martial arts of some sort like even when i was a kid i tried a couple of things and i didn't really have much structure and direction not the right inspiration for it me and my brother and a mate used to hit a punch bag in our garage and we'd say we were going to go to boxing club we went down to the what we thought was the boxing club looked in the window and was just like no you go in no you go no one went in so we went home and just carried on hitting the bag in the garage and that was about it. And then, um, you know, after having my, my business for a while, I was probably hitting a bit of a rocky patch with a few things. And I was just watching TV late one night, watching a bit of MMA. It was strike force. Um, and, uh, and I just thought, you know, I, I was like, Oh, this is interesting bit of fighting. All right. Yeah, cool. 
and then expecting to see what most people would consider a bit of stand up and striking and stuff. And then it went to the ground and I'd never seen that. Um, and uh, they talked about what it was and I got interested and I thought, I had ideas about doing MMA. So I found the gym. It was actually Concept Gym in Newquay. And so I went down, I, I sent him an email and the guy came back to me and he said, yeah, look, we've got, we've got grappling for MMA on a Tuesday and then jujitsu on a Thursday. And I was like, and then there's Thai boxing and stuff. So I signed up for all of that. First went, first class I went to was grappling for MMA, showed a few things from side control, Kimura, this and that. I was like, wow, this stuff really does work. Ooh, yeah, cool. And then they lined us up about, there's about eight or 10 of us in a class. You face in a face a partner hands and they're like right yeah go and then we'll swap partners in a minute i looked at the guy in front of me it's this hungarian guy who i, I still know now and i go what do i do and he goes just try and get me and i'm like uh you know total absolute new guy no fundamentals there was no gi there was i had no idea i watched a tiny bit of mma and i've just been taught a couple of things and then i'm sparring this bouncer a hungarian bouncer who knew plenty of stuff and then the next guy and the next guy and the next guy just got tweaked left right and center but i loved it and uh, carried on the following class was with a guy called kevin Downton, who you would know um and that was a bit more structured that was proper no gi jiu-jitsu there was it wasn't like an mma grappling um it was way more way more technical and uh so i did that and i was doing that for a few months and then i really wanted to try and find somewhere to do gi jiu-jitsu and um i did find a guy and then but i was having a week away i'd already booked a week up in london so i went up to rga hq and uh and went to train up there and i met you know i've met some good people up there i met mauricio gomes in the first trip i met legato uh, Ollie Geddes and then had classes up there just white belt classes twice a day every day for a week and the first one when it got to sparring bearing in mind I'd done a few months training already I just got handled by everybody it's like with the gi on it was even it was just crazy I didn't know anything and I certainly didn't know fundamental stuff that I just missed those basic basic things so then I was like great well that's it I'm doing this came back to Cornwall um and then found a found a guy uh, called rafael dos santos was training with him for a few years um and yeah and that sort of how, that's how it got started but i actually had a break from cornwall in about 2010 i went to work for my brother up in high wickham for about a year and a half doing sales um because i just needed to have i need to have a break need to make some money and so I, my brother had a pretty good business up there doing software sales so i did that when I was up there, I was like, well, I've got to train. Um, so I found Kev Capel, um, in and he had a class on in High Wycombe. So I went and joined up that, and I trained there and, and in Aylesbury with him and his club. And I made lifelong friends there, guys that we were white belts together, and we're now black belts together. And I've stayed under Kev, essentially, from then. I was still training with Raphael, and I actually earned belts blue and purple from Raphael in Cornwall. But then we separated. He went a different direction. I went a different direction and stayed in Newquay. And then I would, I needed to be under somebody, in my opinion. And so I called up Kev and said that I want to be, you know, can I can I be affiliated with you? And he said, yeah. And he's been coming down to Cornwall like a couple of times a year ever since. He, he brings his club down, they go surfing. Uh, sometimes he just comes on his own and goes surfing and get cold dips in. And yeah, he's got me to black belt, first degree now, so yeah 2010 to 
what we 2023 and well i'm a year off second degree now so yeah that's awesome do you ever do you ever find when you're bouncing between gyms there was it's a question i like to to ask people when i talk about jiu-jitsu is kind of the the gym politics with things like people get in upset because you know you're under one person that's like 200 miles away but then you train in there and then you train in there and there's no like you know i guess people call it loyalty but i think i didn't have a problem certainly there was no question even from Raphael when i was 208 miles away like why are you training with kev it's like i was work you know living and working away i would come back to cornwall um at that time i was coming back every other weekend to see my kids i wasn't doing anything else really so he didn't expect anything different out of me then he didn't have anything to say uh before that when i was jumping between mostly training in the gi with Raphael, but still going on a thursday to no gi with kevin derrington he was sort of a tiny bit like i now in retrospect you could tell that he was less impressed but it didn't matter. He still, to be fair to him, he took me under his wing. He definitely wanted uh, me to do well with him, but I wasn't here for a year and a half. And he acknowledged that too. That being said, he gave me two things happened when I was away with Kev, when I was up in, in High Wickham and I was training with Kev, with Kev Capel. One, I entered the British Championships and I said to Kev at the time, what, uh, what team should I enter under? And he, just said to me listen bro he's like I, I don't mind like it's not a big deal to me at all you train with Raph you train with me it's all good he said but some of the guys here might feel funny if you enter the British and they see you in the list and they see you under under Raphael's team and I just thought about it at the time and I was like you know what that's fair I'm here at the moment I'll enter under you so that's what I did um, as it happened I hurt my knee and I didn't actually compete that year but then the other thing that happened was I got invited by Raphael whilst I was at Kev's. And at that time, he said, look, we've got a grading coming up. You, you should come. Um, when you Can you come back to Cornwall? It's in August or wherever it was. He's like, can you come? And, uh, and he was sort of hinting that I could be getting my blue belt. And I was like, I didn't see a problem with that, you know, and maybe... Maybe in retrospect, again, that might have upset a couple of people on the mat in High Wycombe but it didn't matter in the grand scheme of things. So I went back, I did the grading. I got a blue belt from Raphael. When I went back to training the next week in, in High Wycombe and I was proudly wearing my blue belt, a couple of people did say, oh, where'd you get that? You know, and I, I had to explain it and there was no big deal. And so, like I said, in the grand scheme of things, of everything that I've done, I know that, I deserve to be where I am right now. And I don't see anybody really questioning that. And least of all, least of all from Kev's uh, team that I'm very, very close with. And also my former training partners, when I used to train with Raphael as well, they, you know, they, they know who I am. They know what I've done and, and I know what they've done. And yeah, so sometimes I know what you mean. And all I say to my students now on training in other places is look if we've got a class on and your teammates are, are on the mat waiting for you then you probably shouldn't go to a gym down the road because they're, they're your mates are waiting for you here if you're away of course you should go and train somewhere you're away i'm not going to tell you what you can and can't do locally but i'll tell you what how i would feel if i had my best my best training mate doesn't show up on a tuesday night 
And then he goes, no, nah, yeah, well, I went to that other gym. I'd be like, oh, well, we, we're training together, bro. <laughs> Where have you been? So, you know, help the growth of your club. Look after your club. When your club needs you, you know, when you need when you need your club, it's there for you. So your club needs you all the time. So you should be there if you can. If you're away, you're away. So train, train somewhere, get some experience and bring it back home and tell us all about it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of always how, how I've how I've seen things because, uh, you know, again, going back to talking about being in the military, bouncing from, you know, different jobs to different places. I, I bounced between three or four different clubs sort of like, you know, over my time. And, and I've ended up coming back to Exeter and running my own jiu-jitsu school now as well. Um, being uh, being under Exeter, under James Hodges uh, there. Um, it's just kind of, I, I always find it an interesting subject because the politics in in jiu-jitsu, for me, I'm a very black and white person. I always find it quite childish because it, it's always kind of, it's almost like I, I understand that um, sometimes it, it's kind of, it's it's people's lives. Like they're, they're at work, they come home, they go to their gym and they're there every single day and every single one of those person people that are in that gym you know know where their friends and they don't go anywhere else to just go there you know but like for me it's kind of like surfing right you have the opportunity to to travel and go to different places and train with train with different people you know different people have different styles different body types different body movements different patterns and by doing that it kind of makes you uh, you know a, a better person training jiu-jitsu um but you know don't don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not saying that that's that's wrong to do something like that if that's your thing and and that's what uh, makes you you know helps with your mental stability i guess because you know a lot of people use surfing and jiu-jitsu as um a, a, as like a personal anchor because that's what that's their outlet um, you know that that's absolutely fine as well. I'm I'm not slating that. I'm just kind of putting a perspective across that. Um, you know, from from listening to people in the background and not and not um, not participating in certain conversations, it's almost like, are we in school? Are we in the playground? Like, is this a real conversation? Are you a real person? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like that sometimes. Yeah, I mean. There are there are some difficult uh, issues around or complicated issues around it that sort of seemingly shouldn't be complicated, but I just think that maybe jujitsu is such a personal thing. It's personal because people do use it as an outlet. It's personal because um, their club just become a bit of a second home for them. It's personal because we're in everybody's close personal space. There's a lot of trust between your training partners. For a lot of people, when they start something like jiu-jitsu it's very alien to them um and they've had to really let their guard down um in order to you know open up to what jiu-jitsu is um and you know how to use it how to do it what it could be for them and then so then to have people act weird about it um you know well i wouldn't like i said i wouldn't like to tell people what they can and can't do um but i also understand then when some people say they feel let down you know and um when it comes to competition as well and the question you know that i'd ask kev capel at the time about in, in the british on what team should i do 
And the point he was making is that, you know, we're going to be there as a team. The guys will support you. Um, but what about if you come up against one of your teammates? You know, in the unlikely event, I mean, in that white belt, blue belt, whatever, does it matter that much? Maybe, maybe not. But people are paying to go and do it. You know, there's a lot of tension and a lot of emotion and stuff like competing, whatever it is. Um, and when you're trying to pop each other's head off at the same time as well, you know, we usually walk off of a competition map friends with whoever we competed with. But it's funny one when you walk on to one and you're already friends with them. You know, um, you're not developing the relationship anymore. You're now testing it. Whereas if you go against a stranger, it's a development of a relationship. It's not a test. Um, it's a test of your ability, but you don't test your friendship right there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, It can be complicated when that team issue transcends onto the competition map. If it isn't that, what does it really matter? You know? Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Don't digress in this a little bit. You know, what's your view on uh, competition versus just sort of like the the guy that turns up just to just to do jiu-jitsu for, for fitness? Nothing whatsoever. Um, if your your goals are your goals, jiu-jitsu is the same. Um, you know, I will obviously, you know, I might temper my sparring depending on who I'm with for varying different reasons. It could be body size. It could be their goals, you know, whether they're a competitor or not. I might just sense something about any individual student I train with on one given day. I might think, you know what, <clears throat> Johnny there looks like he's had a hard day. I'm not giving him comp rounds right now. You know, he can give it to me if he wants. I'm not going to give it back. I'm just going to just give a real good defensive guard and let him take it out. And I actually had my wife do that as well. You know? So sparring with my wife, I think, you know, she's having a bad day and she's less like, she's gunning for me. I'm getting her shins on my face and everything. <laughs> I, give it back to I can tell that, you know, whatever's going on and I can, you know, I can take it and then I can just start moderating my defenses. You know, I'm certainly... You know, I'm not going to put it back on her like that. If I had somebody that said to me, look, I really, you know, I've got a tough tournament coming up. I need, I need hard sparring. Oh, they're going to get it then, aren't they? Um, and so whether, whether you're a competitor or whether it's just like a hard day in the office or just a life thing, jiu-jitsu is just jiu-jitsu. Um, and, it's, and it's still up to you what you take from it. Um, the effort that you put in individually. I can't make somebody who wants to compete, I can't make them spar at the right level for their competition. They have to do that, you know. Um, even if I put it on them, it doesn't mean they react. They might just they might just feel like their feelings are hurt. <laughs> um, even though I feel like I'm pushing them towards their, their ultimate goal, but maybe they just didn't realise what that was going to require. Um, and then, you know, also somebody that doesn't want to compete, but maybe they want hard rounds. I've got plenty of guys that will give you really hard rounds and they don't set foot on a tournament map. They just want to come in and have a real good smash up. Technical, but tough. And, uh, you know, that's... yeah, I don't think you have to. You know, I think it's uh, it's a nice part of jiu-jitsu culture as a sport that you can go and do this thing. And also that you could, man, if you go to a big tournament, you could be standing next to a multiple world champion. Can't do that down a football club. You grow up in Manchester, you're not going to be like, yeah, I love football. And I'm going to go and kick out. I'm going to have a competitive game just right next to whatever the Man United lineup are <laughs> or whoever it is. You know, I think that's something that's really nice. And of course, I, I see the benefit in competition. And I think that it's a great way to test 
yourself against the unknown, have a little bit of pressure. You get the same thing if you go to a seminar and train with different people. If you go visit someone else's club, you know, you go on holiday to Birmingham and you've never been there before, go jump in in a club there. You'll feel the same pressure, especially if you've got any coloured belt on. White belt's no problem. No one cares. You can't lose at white belt. But when you, if you're a black belt, you go in another club and there's all these purple belts wondering if they can take you out. It's like, well, there you go. <laughs> That's the joy of it, though, right? I did that once. I went to, I went to Portugal and um, I went to, I went to this club. I won't name it. And uh, a guy didn't speak speak English. But why would he in Portugal? Anyway, <laughs> and um, I started. Uh, you know, the, the, it, I think it was just like an open mat. It didn't really explain what the class was. And uh, I started rolling with a couple of couple of guys. And then in the call of my eye, I'd started seeing him, um, seeing this coach going, right, you're with him next. So I went with him, and they were just literally lining them up to smash me. I'd been surfing for like six hours that day. And I went in there just for a couple of rolls. I didn't go back again. Like I was absolutely, like, I, it had been like I'd been in a comp class. As people as well to be fair and especially by the coast the fishermen you know history and all of that and the, and the moorish descent and everything so yeah, yeah. it was it, it was interesting anyway i was kind of like yeah if i if i do this two or three times this week i'm not going to be able to surf at all i was kind of like just weighing weighing up my options really what region were you in surfing where i was in there sarah good to know so, uh, <laughs> But on the flip side of it, um, Ben Ruth, uh, he went there about six months later and he had a whale of a time there. He said it was all right. So I don't know whether it was because I looked like a Viking that they thought, right, let's uh, let, let's smash the heathen, but I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're a bit whiter than him, so uh, maybe that was it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, I don't know. And, uh, and smaller as well, so maybe they tried and they just kept getting triangled by him, which would be unsurprising, given him. Yeah, with those big gangly legs of his. Very, yeah, uh, it's, he's unassuming uh, when I train with him. Uh, he just doesn't seem big. And then he, like, I just see that, you know, and then on the mat, yeah, he's got a very, very interesting guard, so. First competition I ever did, Nuki Open, went down with, with, with my wife and, and daughter at the time. Mm. Not at the time. They're still my wife and my daughter. This, this, don't know why I said that. It's weird. <laughs> and uh, I'd never been in a competition. I'd been training six months. I'd trained with Ben a few times, triangled the crap out of me. Like every single time I trained with him, I was like, right, I'm not going to get into a triangle. First minute and a half, drew him in the first first round, got triangled. That was about half past nine. By 10 o'clock, I was in uh, a cafe in Newquay. And then by about 11 o'clock, I was driving back home again. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, got a quite, he's got quite a good uh, competition uh, resume. Yeah, so he was pretty mellow when I went up and trained with him. Um, and then every time I see him compete, now, he seems to do pretty well. He's subbing people in, in decent events. Yeah, he's, he's, definitely, um, he's definitely changed it up. And he's under Bryn Jenkins now as well. So... Um, he's he's got a really good sort of like foundation and um, and kind of coaching structure uh, there with them as well. Yeah, I would. Uh, yeah, I would have liked to have had some connection for sure. It's just a it's a wicked area. I know he's just moved place. He had a he had a really beautiful little gym on the new yeah. one. Um, so yeah, well, I'm well well impressed by what he's doing up there. So 
we're, we're coming up to the hour mark, mate. So I'd like to finish off with a, a quick fire round in a minute. But uh, last sort of like biggish question, and it's kind of like I don't know. It might be a bit deep for you. I don't know. But uh, what would be your prize bit of advice for anyone that's training jujitsu at the moment? Prize bit of advice. Yeah. I'd say, um, you know, I, mean, I think a lot of people would say this. It's just try to try to enjoy the journey. Um, but like something that Kev Capel had said to me, um, you know, quite a while ago, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but it was sort of like when somebody, when somebody really doesn't care what other people think of you, then that, that somebody can become very dangerous indeed, you know? So, and I think that within the context of jujitsu, it's like, don't care too much like what the next guy thinks about your technique or your belt and whether you not you deserve it or that just don't care let let them pass your guard if that's what's going to happen you know come back you're going to learn a couple of things about how they pass your guard next time they won't do it you know let them catch you with that thing that they've been working on you know it's fairly obvious when somebody's trying to set you up with something that they really want to do like maybe let them do that and then come back and then next time there's just no way no one's going to get you with it you know, and you have to be, you have to not care. And then eventually when you don't care, people don't get close anyway. You're so relaxed about being able to find your way back to that position of safety. that That's when you become very, very difficult to tap, I think. I think that's something to try to get your head around, perhaps. Awesome. <laughs> okay, five questions. I think they're five. Let me just count them. Yeah, five questions. A quick fire round just to, just to finish off on. So first one is coffee or tea? Coffee. Favourite surfer and why? John John Florence. Very, uh, very relaxed uh, surfing style approach, but at the same time, a lot of power, a lot of flair, good mixture of old school and new school and a very, very good inspiration to the younger generation. Oh, that's a good answer. It's the best answer I've had yet, I think. Favourite submission? Bread cutter choke. Dirty, but nice. I like it. The rougher the better. If you had one surfboard set up to ride for the rest of your life, would it be, let's try and get all these in, single fin, twin fin, thruster, bonza, finless, two plus one. I don't think I've missed any yet. Which one of those? I still want a thruster. Nice. And takedowns or pull guard? I love takedowns. Uh, I love to wrestle. Um, I'm not as good as I'd like to be. So I'm probably better at pulling guard. <laughs> I'll, I'll go. I'll go to wrestling if it doesn't work. I'll pull guard. I know I can always fall back on it, right? Exactly. Nick Tisco, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me, mate. <laughs> and that's it. If you like the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe on your podcast provider, and also leave us a little review if you feel like it. I hope you do. Catch you next week.